1: And welcome back to another episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Uh, This week, we're going to be talking about war crimes, which have been a huge and horrifying feature of the Ukrainian conflict. From the very first days, it was clear that this was going to be a very dirty war indeed, and the atrocities go on unabated.
0: Well, to give you some kind of rough idea, Ukrainian government figures say that as of the beginning of July... About 10,000 civilians had been killed in the conflict by the Russians, and more than 300 of them were children. Most died in indiscriminate attacks on apartment blocks, shopping centres, and other sort of civilian areas. There have also been many well documented reports of torture, murder, and the rape of civilians in Russian held areas.
1: Now, such atrocities naturally generate worldwide indignation and condemnation, and demands that something should be done to bring the perpetrators to justice. This week, we've talked to someone who is dedicated to doing just that.
0: Janine Di Giovanni is a veteran war reporter who has worked for The Times, The New York Times, The Guardian and Vanity Fair, but she's also a human rights activist and academic, currently a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs.
1: She recently founded uh, with Peter Pomerantsev, the Reckoning Project, which is described as a transitional justice organisation that trains researchers in Ukraine to collect testimonies that can be used in court. This is what she told us. Janine, welcome to the podcast. You covered many a conflict over the years, including very brutal wars in Syria And Grozny, in which war crimes abounded. How do you characterize the current war in Ukraine in terms of the level of atrocity and and the disregard for human life?
2: Well, it's interesting that you say that, because really what we're doing at the Reckoning Project is trying to gather testimonies and build patterns, which we will then build into cases for international justice mechanisms. But one thing I am very aware of, are the themes and the trends between the wars in Chechnya, the second Chechen war and Syria. So Putin has a very deliberate and gruesome playbook, we can say, and I think it mainly concerns um, the treatment of civilians. So we're seeing an absolute indiscriminate attack on civilians, completely unnecessary in the way that we saw Grozny being leveled. I was in Grozny when it fell, the end of January in 2000, and the fall of East Aleppo in December 2016, the same kind of leveling buildings, hitting hospitals, hitting schools, in the case of the Ukraine war, hitting train stations where people are trying to flee, um, hitting shops that are known to be centers of activity, such as the electrical shops where people gather to buy their their phone chargers and things like that. that, as well as absolutely horrific findings in places like Bucha, where the, there was an occupation, they pulled out, and then we began to see horrific findings of extrajudicial killing, murder, torture, um, keeping people in basements in inhuman in conditions for long periods of time, And there's a whole other aspect, which we, the Reckoning Project, my team and I are building, which are cases of ecological terrorism. And by that, I mean Chernobyl, the occupation of the Chernobyl nuclear site in March for a month, um, not only disrupted contaminated areas like the Red Forest, where Russian soldiers dug trenches and laid in. Um, into an area which I went to see government officials in Kyiv on my last trip there. And they basically said those soldiers are more than likely dead already. Meanwhile, the, the Ukrainians who were held hostage in the Chernobyl facility were meant they can only do by law, um, you know, following the protocol of nuclear safety, eight hour shifts. And they were held for a month. Same thing going on in Zaporizhia, as as we see now. Very, very dangerous to kind of um, use nuclear facilities as areas of of military uh, battles.
0: Tell us a little bit about how the Reckoning Project came about, Janine, before we talk about the specifics of what it's up to.
2: Sure. Sure. So the day after the invasion of Ukraine, Peter Pomerantsev, who is um, a Kiev-born British academic writer, expert on Russian propaganda, phoned me in in, in anguish, really, because he just said, we have to do something much more than being reporters and going to work, which, of course, is a very noble profession, but we want it to to go deeper. I had just finished a three-year project with the United Nations, um, training journalists in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, not just journalists, actually, first responders, doctors, uh, firemen, how to report war crimes. So how to identify violations of international humanitarian law, international criminal law, what constitutes a war crime, what constitutes genocide, which is a term that people use too freely, I think. What is a crime of aggression? What is a crime of peace? Um, And how they could build this. So Peter and I basically within very short time got funding from the U.S. government um, and pulled together an extraordinary team led by Natalia Gumanyuk, who is probably Ukraine's finest investigative journalist. We hired 15 researchers in the field. And the difference between what we're doing and, let's say, other uh, war crime investigations is that my team are Ukrainian and they're locals. They're in situ, they're in Sumy, they're in Hersong, they're in Kharkiv, they're in Chernihiv. they're in Chernobyl. They know everyone their, it's, it's their country. And that can also be a disadvantage because of course it's incredibly, it's incredibly damaging for them to see this happening. And we have to keep an eye on their, um, their state of trauma. Um, And basically we train them using based methodology. We have a very strict methodology, which adheres to international legal standards. So Patrick, you and I were journalists for many years together and the way we took notes while you know accurate would not hold up in a court of law, so our my team's work um the the templates that we use we then build archives we then I have a data processor who's actually a Syrian from Yarmouk camp um, we have a Syrian lawyer working with him. we then verify everything and verify to a very high degree, and then we begin to build cases which will go to either universal jurisdiction or to um, feed into the UN Committee on Inquiry. We're working with the war crimes prosecutor in Kyiv, the Office of the Prosecutor General. Um, We're working with many different outlets. And in fact, one of the main things we're doing now is trying to promote cooperation because there's so many people on the ground now gathering evidence that we need to adhere to best practices. So I'm really proud. My little, our little team... You know, started in February, and we're we're growing and growing, and we've already got seventy testimonies, which is really extraordinary.
1: How does it uh, actually play out, though, Janine? You and I, well, I think everyone knows that the chances of actually getting some broad reckoning, to use the title of your project, they're slim. Um, now, I know that's no one really realistically expects to bring every war criminal to justice, but can you tell us what? you know, what the optimum outcome would be of your efforts and those uh, parallel efforts that are going on in Ukraine?
2: No, absolutely. And this is the first question people ask. Look, this is the first war that I've witnessed where war crimes are being gathered whilst the war is happening. We know that Bosnia was a long road to justice. And in fact, it hasn't been delivered at all. The ICTY did some good work, but very few people were actually brought to, to trial, including the 20,000 women who were raped. There were 26 people that were actually tried for that. So we're getting the evidence prepared. Um, look, ultimately, of course, we want Putin in The Hague, but I think that's a very remote chance, although Slobodan Milosevic did go to the ICC. So, I mean, that is one example of how we can get you know the, the, the top-down Um, bringing them to justice, I think. But what is important, though, is we're working towards universal jurisdiction, which let's say um, the Koblenz trial, which my colleague Raji worked on helping to build. So we're looking more towards getting our cases absolutely airtight, prepared, they're ready. And then when we do get these people, it's all ready to go. There's not going to be a long process and delay once the war ends actually moving forward so you know i do think there's frustration especially for my team who want to see very quick results international justice doesn't work that way it's it's a very long strategy and and a long road and you have to basically keep your eyes on the prize which is that we are documenting we're collecting evidence at a very high level and it will it will not be forgotten you know what I think the greatest frustration I've witnessed and the leading cause of um, let's say re, the violence restarting, whether it's Bosnia or the revision of facts in Rwanda today um, about the genocide or Srebrenica, indeed, there is this kind of revision of what actually happened. So having these testimonies airtight, archived, ready, is a way of saying, we're not going to forget here are the facts and we're ready to go. And we're Patrick, we are working with prosecutors um, throughout North America and, and Europe as well. And, and of course, Ukraine, because Ukraine should take the lead. The national courts should be the first stop for, for justice for Ukraine. Given that
0: your team is um, mainly, as you say, Janine, Ukrainian, which has its advantages, well, one potential disadvantage is that they... Are not going to be quite as determined to uh, dig out atrocities that are bound to have been carried out by the Ukrainian side, if just in retaliation. Um, is there is there any indication that they are being documented at the moment?
2: Um, this is a really good point. It was one of the first things we we looked at. Our mandate is from the State Department, from USAID, who fund us is is not to look at Ukrainian war crimes. That's a whole other area. People are absolutely looking at them. The amnesty report, which came out about three weeks ago, uh, was caused an enormous um, fracas in, in, in Ukraine because it said that Ukrainian troops are putting civilians in harm's way. Um, absolutely, there are people that are very specifically looking at that. Of course, the Kremlin is looking at it in a very different way, but it's not our mandate. And in, in a sense... Um, that would be a very difficult thing for me to lead a team of Ukrainians who have been bombed out of their houses, who have lost family members and ask them, look, now we're going to investigate what, what your side is doing. So thankfully at the moment, I don't have to do that next year. When we're renewed, maybe that will be added to my, to my mandate, but right now it's not part of it. Although I'm keeping a careful eye on it. I think it's really important because when I was working in Syria for many years, um, I did, you know, it was really important for me to know what the first FSA, what they were doing, and then the the various jihadi groups that blossomed out of the Syrian opposition. Um, It would have been foolish and naive for me to say, there's only one side committing horrific atrocities. Both sides did it. One side far worse than the others, the Assad side. Same with the Bosnian war, Patrick, and we know that, you know, the, the Bosnian Serbs by far committed the multitude of, of human rights abuse. But the, Bosni- the Bosniaks had their, not as many, and I don't want to, you know, put it in the same league, but they also were guilty of, of some war crimes.
1: Uh, Janine, to could make a personal point, uh, if you could. Uh, you've had a lot of, well, you know, almost unprecedented amount of experience uh, of, of these terrible events. Um, I won't ask how it impacts on you, personally but directly but what are your thoughts about why this happens i mean the whole notion of progress really comes to a grinding halt doesn't it when you look at the the way that recent wars have been conducted the early 20th century wars latter part of the uh, 21st century wars the latter part of the 20th century wars any notion that war was going to actually be waged in a more progressive way if that's not a ridiculous thing to say has completely gone out of the window hasn't it have you got any you must brood about this a lot have you got any ideas about why this is so
2: look i i would have thought that by now we would have progressed beyond absolute sheer brutality and savagery and part of my job is that i've got to go through these testimonies really carefully not as a not as a journalist but more thinking as a legal from a legal point of view um and I go to Ukraine basically every month and I work with various researchers. I'm still, after more than 30 years of doing this, appalled at what human beings can do to each other. Some of the crimes in Bucha um, were horrific, the torture methods that were used. I thought I saw, I thought I had seen it all. I thought that nothing would cap what Assad did in his prisons. But some of the methods they're using... And the sheer cruelty of it is is just hard to get our heads around. And I remember many years ago being in Afghanistan with General Sir David Richards, who is a personal hero of mine, whom I'm sure you both know, um, who basically ended the war in Sierra Leone in, in 2000 and, and is now, and then went on to be the head of the, the British Army, essentially. And he said to me, and this must have been about 2000, it was the time of like the most bloody time in Helmand, when British troops were in Sangin and he said, in the future the war will be waged, wars will be waged on the internet. It'll be drone warfare, it'll be propaganda. Um but Ukraine to me is like going back to a World War even worse than a World War I type of war. Bosnia, the trenches, the the bloodshed, the the young, the young lives on both sides being absolutely wiped out. the the villages being burnt, the torture, the filtration camps. Um, We're looking at cases of children, Ukrainian children being transported across the Russian border with their parents alive in filtration camps, um, being taken to Moscow for adoption because of the whole policy of russification, the attempt to wipe out Ukrainian identity. Um, These are things, these are the kind of themes that you and I have seen over and over and over. And I'm just... It is extraordinary that in you know 2022, having progressed so far on so many societal levels that we that human beings can brutalize each other in, in this way. And, um, you know, I going through these testimonies, I, I really I have to kind of gird myself for it because it's it's really heavy going. Um, it's terrible. And the cruelty is immense. The hatred. I mean, I remember, you know, we would say this about the Serbs and the Bosniaks, but this kind of hatred and this kind of vengeance that will occur from this, unless there is justice, because I truly believe that wars begin again when
0: wars end badly. Well, that was Janine de Giovanni giving us plenty to talk about. Join us after the break when we'll dig into what she said and discuss the latest developments in the war. down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing
3: mint mobile unlimited
0: premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 bet you get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com
3: slash switch
1: 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promo rate for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
3: want to get a chiseled look in the jawline Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
1: Welcome back. Well, I've known Janine for many years. She's a very brave and intrepid woman, someone who's got a burning sense of justice, which I think came through very strongly there. I found it very moving. And hats off to her and her team for doing a very grim but very uh, necessary job. Um, I think, you know, she's a realist, and I think what we all know really about attempts uh, to get some sort of reckoning um, are... Well, I won't say futile because that, that would be a, a dreadful admission. But I think everyone realistically going into it knows that the uh, you're not going to get something like any complete uh, holding to account. I mean, to give an example in Syria, Syria has seen the same sort of levels of atrocity, disregard for human life, indeed deliberate acts of wanton violence against innocents. Uh, and yet despite uh, all the bloodshed there as far as i'm aware only two individuals have actually been brought to justice one of them is a guy called anwar raslan who a colonel in the syrian intelligence corps of the syrian army of the of the of um, assad's army who ran a detention center in damascus he was uh, convicted as an accomplice in 27 murders and 4000 cases of torture Uh, This was the, Janine made a reference to this uh, in her interview. Um, This uh, happened in Koblenz in in Germany. He was given a life sentence. uh, And that was just, it was just good fortune, really, that he was captured. He'd gone to Germany in 2014 on a visa and was arrested in in 2019. But he was a very small cog in the wheel.
0: Yeah, and there you 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 mentioned the unlikelihood of of people, uh, even in Ukraine, uh, being brought to justice. But what's different about the Reckoning Project is that they're collecting information almost in real time. You know, if you think about a crime. Patrick. You know, you think about law and order. They always say it's those first few hours after the actual act has been committed that there's the vital time to gather evidence. And okay, it may not be a matter of hours, but it's certainly a matter of days in which they are gathering material. So we'll only really know how effective the reckoning project has been when the war stops and there is a chance to get hold of some of these people. You mentioned a couple of people Uh, We know that in Ukraine, uh, despite the fact that as of several months ago, 14,000 war crimes have been documented and 600 perpetrators named, and yet only a few have been put on trial. I mean, we shouldn't be that surprised about that because the war is still underway. Um, Those people include a lowly soldier who shot a civilian and two men who were operating a battery that fired rockets at an apartment block in Kharkiv. Both ordinary soldiers who used, of course, the classic defence, Second World War defence, that they were only doing what they were ordered.
1: Yeah. Um, what you're really after is, is, is the directors of the, of the violence, not, not the people who were carrying it out. And of course, that requires very special circumstances. We always go back to Nuremberg. Nuremberg was where the principle was established that uh, individuals could be held responsible for starting wars, waging aggressive wars, one of the uh, the two sort of core charges against the defendants and the other being uh, crimes against humanity. But of course, there you had just 21 people in the dock. So the sins of the entire uh, German armed forces and if um, like me you believe that the german nation generally was uh, bore quite a lot of responsibility for what went on uh, they were on the on the shoulders of these 21 men of course the, the main pur- some of the main perpetrators had escaped justice by committing suicide but um that really requires uh, the, the massive prerequisite of of uh, unconditional surrender total victory by one side or the other you know, the, the person, as Janine said, we really want to see in that, dock is Vladimir Putin. And uh, in the way things are going, that is a, a very unlikely uh, prospect, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, Orlando Fijas, of course, telling us, and I've had a chat with him since then, about his pessimism, that uh, not only is Putin unlikely to be brought to justice, he's unlikely to be to toppled from power anytime soon in Russia, even in the event of a russian defeat um he will find some way to spin things but let's not get too depressed but i think the other thing that is important uh to bear in mind apropos my question about uh the acts that are obviously being committed by both sides now that's not to make a moral equivalence at all we wouldn't dream of doing that any more than frankly you would have done in the second world war but it is interesting of course in uh, when when we think about that that the victors Uh, often uh, do not bring their people to justice. The Red Army, of course, is the classic case in the Second World War, committed an enormous number of uh, atrocities and rapes that, of course, were brought out in books like Stalingrad and Berlin by Anthony Beaver, uh, as a result of which, of course, he's persona non grata in Russia these days, as I suspect, uh, will Orlando Fai just after the publication of his very objective, but of course not terribly, uh, attractive book from, from, uh, Putin's regime is concerned. But, uh, the Red Army generally speaking, people weren't, were not generally speaking, literally, people were not brought to justice. Um, and you could even go so far, and I know you've written and spoken about this before, Patrick, to suggest that actually even the Brits, in, in terms of the bombing campaign, uh, might have been considered to have been uh, committing a war crime there, certainly in some of the instances of area bombing.
1: Yeah, well, I've got quite a nuanced view on all that, on the strategic bombing campaign. I think it was justifiable, um, but I can equally see that in, seen through other eyes, it could legitimately present, be presented as a war crime as well. Um, Janine referenced the uh, Yugoslav situation or the, and the Serbs in particular. Now, that is a case where the leaders uh, of what was an aggressive war uh, were actually brought to justice in uh, the ICT, were the International Criminal Tribunal in, in uh, on Yugoslavia in The Hague. Uh, and elsewhere, I believe. So, you know, the three main villains of the piece, Slobodan Milosevic, Ratko Mladic, he was the, Milosevic was the head of the Serbian state, Ratko Mladic, head of the army, and Radovan Karadzic, the head of the breakaway Republic of Serbska, which was uh, a, a, a kind of sub-region. Uh, Republic of Serbska is the same principle that Putin argues for everywhere that somewhere, someone speaks Serbian or deems themselves to be Serbian is part of Serbia. It's a kind of uh, a pretty sort of crazy concept. Uh, if we actually follow that ourselves, we, we would be, feel uh, justified and go to war with America to bring America back into the English speaking fold. But uh, that doesn't seem to stop uh, them propagating this. I mean, Putin was on about this again earlier this week. This notion that uh, anyone that can exhibit signs of of, of being exposed to Russian culture or the Russian language, speaks the Russian language, is therefore a a, uh, a citizen of Russia. It's such a kind of retrograde idea. It's astonishing that it's uh, even sort of propagated, let alone believed. And. There's a lot of evidence that it, that there, many Russians do believe this. I was reading a story the other day about how the new school curriculum in Russia teachers are given a lot of, of uh, lines to push in school, uh, which reinforce this kind of mindset. Uh, but sorry, just to get back to to Serbia, yeah, the, the, all the this trio did all end up doing time. Um, but the reason for that was because Ser- Serbia hadn't been, uh, you know, occupied, but it had been pretty decisively defeated. And the people uh, in charge in Serbia realised that if they were going to ever uh, come back into sort of polite international society, with the essential economic uh, benefits that brought, um, then they were going to have to hand them over. They didn't do it very happily, but they they realised it was essential if they were going to have any kind of future at all.
0: Yeah, and I think the optimists among us, and we'll talk about this in a second when we get when we move on to the latest news, but I think the optimists among us might hope, that uh, Orlando Fidges is wrong, and that at some stage, the Russians, who, uh, you know, despite earning an awful lot of cash from their their fossil fuels over the last six months, are actually being hammered in other economic terms, that sooner or later they realise that, uh, again, they want to re-enter polite international society, or at least that they want the economic sanctions to be completely dropped. And if they have to hand over Putin to do that, you can imagine a possible scenario where that might be the case. But, you know, call me an optimist, Patrick. I I know that not everyone listening to this podcast is going to be as convinced.
1: I was rather heartened uh, by the voices we heard from Gorbachev's funeral, where considerable numbers of Russians lined up to pay their last respects That's something that requires a lot of boldness, a lot of courage, because everyone will be being photographed. Everyone's presence will be noted. And there were were considerable numbers of people that were prepared to stand up and say this guy was a forceful good. Uh, We respect him. Uh, We honor his memory. And um, so there is, you know, we should never lose sight of this, never condemn the entire Russian nation. And who knows, one day those people may be in charge and indeed Putin will be. Uh, standing uh, in a dock somewhere and answering for his multitude of crimes. On this point about uh, about sanctions, uh, I think the, the the main story of the last few days that, that deals with that is, of course, what's happening with Nord Stream One, which is the main way that the Russians export their um, their gas under the Baltic from from Russia to Germany. Now it's effectively been shut down. Uh, the Russians claim there's some sort of technical problem which will have to be it's a um, in a compressor unit and there's an oil leak in this compressor unit they say that uh, unless this is dealt with then the uh, the, the thing is eff- effectively switched off uh, they say that it's up to uh, Siemens uh energy with German massive German company uh, to repair it Siemens say they haven't got any kind of contract with uh, Gazprom which is the of course state uh, operator of all the uh, Russian gas uh, so it's a bit, it's clearly, it's another bit of Russian theatre. They're basically uh, trying to put their foot on the windpipe of Europe prior to uh, winter descending. And behind that, um, of course, is the threat that unless you lift sanctions or ease sanctions, uh, then you're going to suffer uh, a catastrophic loss of energy this winter. Is that how you see it all? I mean, do, what do you think is Putin's game there?
0: Yeah, I mean, you could argue, of course, that the the actual turning off of the, of the Nord Stream 1 uh, gas pipe supply is an act of desperation here, because, of course, there's an element of blackmail, as you've already pointed out, Patrick. But frankly, it's unlikely to work. So uh, what is driving this? Well, what is driving this potentially is the damage that's being done to uh, the Russian economy, which, of course, we're not directly aware of. We'll, we'll come on to a couple of points that relate to that in a second when we deal with the rest of the news. But I think it's worth saying, on the subject of, of energy prices, the high energy prices, um, I suppose you could argue are making which of course is partly the result of the war, are making it more difficult for the Ukraine to win because Russia is making so much money from oil, gas, and coal sales. How much well, an estimated one hundred and forty one billion pounds. Compa- that's since the start of the war, compared to the cost of the war for the Russians. And again, these are just estimates, but that's estimated at 86 billion uh, pounds. So even though Russia has cut gas supplies to Europe by 75%, the inflated cost of gas means the EU is paying as much for gas as it was a year ago, which is pretty scary to think about.
1: Yeah, um, I, th- I don't think there's any realistic expectation that uh, by cutting off gas, Putin is going to get a complete reversal of the uh, European sanctions policy because it's, for one thing, it's a, as it's a foreign policy decision, it's taken collectively and unanimously. So uh, it would require a unanimous decision to undo it. And I can't see the frontline states like Poland and uh, the Baltic states, which are very much on the front line. They have an existential interest in weakening and... Uh, reducing the threat that they face from from Russia uh, i can't see them sort of suddenly saying okay yeah let's let's forget about it but i think what he's really trying to do is as usual to dis- disrupt and divide and so to sow division among the uh, ranks of the europeans which will lead he hopes uh, to a greater uh, uh, willingness to allow uh, the ukrainians to reach a point where they are more or less forced to go to negotiations. And as we've said several times, for negotiations essentially mean victory for Russia. Uh, And part of those negotiations will be sanctions. So I think that will be thrown into the mix and it will then become an element in any kind of deal. Uh, And that obviously means that uh, the Russians will be demanding the lifting of uh, total lifting of sanctions. That may not happen, but at least some amelioration of the current regime.
0: Yeah, and there certainly are signs that the the West is is tightening the screw a little bit. The EU ha, has stopped buying Russian coal, but will not phase out, admittedly, oil imports entirely until the end of the year. But the G seven is is looking at a global price cap on Russian oil, which of course is going to reduce the amount of cash that can be brought in. Now, that's just a G7. They've got to persuade everyone else to, to stick to their guns. And, you know, and we've got outliers, of course, like uh, China and India, who are very unlikely to be uh, curbed in that sense. But, but I, we should just mention that Britain has cut its import of Russian oil and gas to zero. And it did that in June. So we are flying the flag. And it's also worth pointing out, Patrick, that, you know, in terms of total cost of cash, uh, in, in terms of armaments that are going to uh, the Ukraine, well, America's way out ahead, but we're number two in the total amounts. Of course, as a percentage of GDP, we we come a little bit further down the track, as, of course, does America. But we're certainly doing our bit. And I think um, it is worth pointing out in terms of other news this week, other important news this week, which is that, of course, we have a new prime minister that uh, Zelensky has been incredibly grateful to uh, the role that Britain has played in terms of the eulogy that he was giving to uh, Boris over the last few days. And it's not <laughs> many people in the UK who, uh, who were not glad to see the back of Boris, but uh, Zelensky was. And of course, you know, saying a number of very nice things about him, he'd played a significant role since the start of the war, both in terms of marshalling sanctions against Russia and providing Ukraine with arms. Uh, he hopes and trust that Liz Truss will continue this support, but he cannot be 100% confident. Uh, Johnson, on the other hand, is saying you should be confident because I think uh, uh, Britain and Truss will will stick by you. So let's hope that is the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think we can say in, in Boris Johnson's favour, and uh, we'll go down on his political epitaph, is that he really did show leadership there and and fortitude. He very, very staunch supporter, never waved at all when elsewhere... In the world, Um, there were wobbles and doubts. America did stand firm too, but Europe certainly had a a much more kind of uh, varied and checkered response to the whole thing. As to Liz Truss, I'm afraid, uh, although she may be talking the talk now, um, I don't feel, I've never felt that uh, her convictions uh, run particularly deep Uh, Let's just hope that she regards that as being a part of the Johnson legacy that she can't jettison. Only time will tell.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about other news. And we mentioned, of course, last week the start of Ukraine's uh, counter uh, offensive. It's been quite tricky. We've been keeping our eye on this, and it's been quite tricky uh, to uh, get reliable information about this, mainly because the Ukrainians, the government, and the military have imposed effectively a news blackout. But that is not going to stop. Uh, many people both uh, observing whatever information they can get and pointing out that it looks like, pretty encouraging, frankly, that Ukrainian troops are advancing in several directions in the western Kherson region and have secured uh, various areas on both sides of Kherson. And of course, the whole point being slowly but surely, they want to put Kherson in a pocket which they can surround, a bit like Stalingrad, uh, and hopefully uh, force the Russians there to surrender. And the This information is backed up by several reports on social media, which is the way things are going in terms of news reporting these days, Patrick, that so-called geo-located videos, uh, videos that you you can confirm by GPS have actually been taken in the areas they say they've been taken in, uh, that Ukrainian forces have liberated territory, as I say.
1: Um, There are also uh, suggestions that the the Russians are depleting other areas in order to shore up their defences in Kherson, and that makes them vulnerable. And that would seem to um, play into stories we've been hearing about counterattacks further north uh, around Kharkiv. Uh, There are stories that the Ukrainians are making significant gains there. They've taken a settlement called Volokhiv-Yar. A report by the Institute for the Study of War uh, believes that um, this is a result of that kind of um, redeployment from the Kharkiv area of Russian troops towards Kherson. Uh, and including some of their best units, uh, if one can really say there is such a thing in the Russian army as it currently is in Ukraine. There was something called the uh, the Guards Army, which apparently has been shifted south, and that opened the door for this Ukrainian counterattack.
0: There are also interesting reports that Russia is running out of kit, basically, uh, running out of armaments. Uh, how do we know this? Well, the New York Times has reported that it's looking to Uh, that great producer of effective munitions, North Korea, to supply it with both artillery shells and rockets to restock its war arsenal. Um, This actually comes from American intelligence reports that the New York Times has got its hands on. And those reports also say that Iran is supplying the Americans with military drones. Uh, And beyond that, apparently North Korea has offered to send construction workers to occupied Ukraine to reconstruct destroyed cities like Mariupol, um but an interesting point by, made by one analyst is that Russia would be doing none of this if their good friend China was willing to risk western sanctions by helping them out i mean is it is it better than nothing getting this kit for russia do you think or is this a very bad sign for their war effort
1: well is you know it's not a good look is it really you have to go to kim jong un to uh, to get your um to get your supplies uh i mean it, it may be one of those things which is uh, you know we'd like to believe rather than it actually being a uh, a significant fact but i think there is um, definite evidence uh, that the sanctions are hurting the military effort in a very specific way which is that they can't get uh the chips they need microchips they need for their guided Munitions, uh, and in that respect, sanctions really is hurting the military effort in a very specific way. So, um, all the general picture I think is that Russia is finding it increasingly difficult. And the story, uh, the question, are sanctions working? I think the the evidence really suggests that the the answer is yes, uh, and it's only going to get worse. The um, a a European Commission report, tweet, uh, rather a tweet from the European Commission said that they were actually causing colossal damage to the Kremlin's ability to wage war and that this will only uh, grow over time. And they noted that 40 countries representing over 50% of the world's gross domestic product are involved in this action. I mean, that is a huge chunk of of world capacity which is turned against uh, Russia. I mean, of course, there are significant players, notably China, who haven't, but the balance... um, is is definitely uh, pretty even, uh, and it, it. But that doesn't really give uh, Russia an advantage because uh, it, it's a it's a long game, uh, as Janine said. This war is clearly going to go on for some considerable time uh, longer, and and time is, I would argue, on Ukraine's side in this one.
0: Yeah, on a slightly lighter note, we mentioned uh, on one of our previous episodes that Russian viewers were switching off state television because they were fed up with being <laughs> fed a constant diet of propaganda and panel shows uh, explaining the special operation. Um, Well, now we hear that the state media, and by definition, of course, that means the government, have responded by actually putting back a lot of the favourite TV shows, like the talent show, uh, beautifully named, if rather uh, long, We Sing in the Kitchen, The Whole Country. Uh, That's a sort of (laughs) singing-drinking contest, apparently, which is very popular, and also two popular crime dramas Uh, Trigger and Silver Spoon. But these are only being shown on the weekends. It's it's a sign that uh, people are fed up with the war. Who knows? But they're certainly fed up with the diet of TV they've been getting.
1: Yeah, strangely, neither of those two have made it onto Netflix. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but who knows? Who knows? Okay, we reported uh, before, it's been an ongoing story about what's happening in Zaporizhia, the nuclear plant in southeast Ukraine. Uh, The UN inspectors got there and they're going to stay. uh, for the time being, but um, there's alarming news that, the, that Moscow is, is drawing up plans to redirect power from Zaporizhia to the Russian grid, basically stealing uh, all that energy. But um, more worrying is that this uh, switchover will raise a serious risk of a meltdown of the reactors uh, while they're doing so. And the head of Ukraine's atomic energy company, Petro Kutin, Said the cooling systems could fail if the switchover took longer than ninety minutes. I mean, that sounds like the uh, the, thro- the plot of a thriller, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's grim stuff, isn't it? And you know, we're we're concerned about the course of the war and how the military effort is going, and we're keeping an eye on on things there. But in a sense, uh, this is the big story really of the war so far, isn't it? The potential uh, fallout, literally, of a nuclear disaster. You know, Janine mentioned uh, the earlier stuff that was going on up in uh, Chernobyl, where the Russians were literally digging trenches uh, in the old uh, nuclear reactor area, uh, and, and how she suspected a lot of people, um, you know, who'd been involved in in that Russian action, had already lost their lives because, of course, they they, they must have been affected by uh, nuclear fallout.
1: Yeah, well, that was a fascinating detail, uh, something I hadn't heard before. So that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, one of the great things we have to struggle from from time to time is the lack of accurate information on the ground. Uh, not only really that would be provided by by journalists, but this war uh, is being handled in a very different way from previous wars. We're very lucky next week to have as our guest Anthony Lloyd, a star war correspondent for many years for The Times. He's going to tell us all about his experiences in Ukraine and the new policies that are shaping the way we get to hear about what's going on. Do join us.